As the choir makes their way down, we'll see if you're ready for this morning's sermon on the essentials. I say theology, you say? Okay, it's getting a little better. You know, I say theology, you say hooray. Let's try it. Theology. Hooray. All right. We've been talking and looking at, of course, the essentials of the Christian faith in our current series, The Essentials. And I've defined or I've suggested to you one way of looking at essentials is that essentials are our common ground, at least a big piece of our common ground, meaning these are the things on which Christians everywhere should and must find unity, despite and even because of our diversity, because we're different from each other. Just look around. And when you get to know someone, you realize they're even more different than you, probably. But it's this sort of unity and diversity that Jesus prayed for, for us, specifically in John 17, the night before he died. On his heart, on his mind, as he goes to sacrifice his life, he's praying, oh God, may they continue to be one as you and I are one. And when we do that, when we do our part in allowing God that opportunity to find unity in diversity in us, unity on the essentials, well, in Jesus' words, the world will know that Jesus is indeed sent by God and that God indeed loves the world. And in large part, they'll know those things because of the love it takes for us to unite in our diversity with others different from us. That's not something that comes very natural. That's why we need God to do it. But when we allow it to happen, when we don't block God from doing it from such things as pride or ego or whatnot, when we allow God to forge that unity and diversity in us, we simply sing of God's love to the world. Without our unity, if it's not happening, then our message is at best thin or hypocritical. At worst, it's phony, and it's not real. That's how important unity and diversity is. So, last week, you remember, we began by looking at the essentials surrounding Scripture. And we began as God did in Genesis 1, verse 1, affirming that in the beginning, God, there is a God and he created the heavens and the earth. He desires to reveal himself, make something, make other beings, something to which that he can have a relationship with. So there is a God, and he wants to have relationship with us, with his creation. And so he reveals himself to us in creation, and he reveals himself to us right down to each individual person at a point in time and place in a personal relationship with him. And the story of God and his revelation is written down in the writings, the scripture. Scripture is inspired in a way that it is indeed the word of God, God breathed. And God, as God's word, it is inerrant or infallible. It is truth and will never let you down. And as God's word, Scripture is authoritative, meaning 
since it comes from the creator of everything and our God who loves us and relates with us, since that's its origin, it has the right to guide us and direct us in how we live. Among the things we looked at last week are the different opinions on inerrancy, the truthfulness of Scripture. We saw how some in the family of faith believers believe there are absolutely no errors of any sort in Scripture, while others leave room for scientific or small historical factual errors in the text, errors they feel have no real bearing or are inconsequential to what the Bible is really after, intending to teach or reveal. And before we leave Scripture entirely and go to our next topic this morning, let me say this about that. In my own study of the Bible, in earnest, especially these last 14 years as I prepare to teach and now teach the Scriptures, do you know, I can't show you even one single instance in Scripture that I can tell you I'm sure is error. Not one. Now, there are a small handful of small historical details I have questions about. A few of those I even suspect maybe a small error in inconsequential fact. But I can't tell you that for sure, and in fact, I've seen nothing that diminishes or qualifies or contradicts the great story of our God and his unconditional love and his wildly successful plan to save the world through Jesus, his son. And so while we can find these ponderously long lists of errors that some people seem rabidly eager to claim that they have found in the scriptures. When you take a closer look, most of what they call errors are easily explained and many times explained by how ancient writers wrote and expressed themselves, for example. One short example and then we need to move on. Some, some say the fact that the four Gospels have events in Jesus' life happening in different chronological order, which is true, they do. Some say that that fact that the four Gospels differ on what miracle followed what event or where Jesus, some say that, well, that must prove that one of them at least, one of those Gospels at least, is wrong, error, they claim. But what those critics don't understand or refuse to appreciate because many of them seem to be intelligent enough to understand the data and information is readily available. They choose to ignore it. What they don't understand is that ancient writers in the first century and before would often take liberty with chronological order in order to emphasize a point. It was an accepted literary device. It's how they wrote. They wouldn't consider it in error. And so the accusation of error in the chronological order of the Gospels is, ironically enough, itself rooted in error. Rooted in ignorance, really, the ignorance of those critics in failing to appreciate how first century Jewish and Eastern writers told stories. In any event, this book is not riddled with what we might call errors, oh, so far from it. 
seeming errors to our time and place. Many are easily explained, and often through cultural contextual studies, which many of you know is a favorite field of mine. And what few details cannot be fully explained, to my satisfaction at least, or anyone's satisfaction, what few of those there are for me, they don't come anywhere close to impacting or affecting the overall truth and power and reliability of what is revealed here. Not even close. And so whatever camp of inerrancy you lean toward, the common ground of Scripture remains that what is revealed here will never, ever let you down. Never. It is infallible. God promises. And you know, I suppose if we were keeping track, God is probably about, you know, one trillion for one trillion in keeping his promises. It's a pretty good average. You know, a trillion for a trillion in keeping his promises. And his promises, each and every one of them, backed by no less than the blood of his only son. That's pretty reliable collateral and guarantee that God keeps his promises and will continue to do so. Amen? Amen. And speaking of God, that's what I want to look, or that's who I'd like to look at with you more closely this morning from a theological lens at least, something that theologians call his attributes or his qualities. Sounds so clinical, doesn't it? attributes or his qualities. The question we're after in plainer English is this. What is God like? What is he like, this God of ours? And even with such a simple question, theologians can't seem to resist. They're off and running, talking about the attributes of God, when a word like characteristics would be just fine, or posing the question, what he's like, would be just fine. Sometimes, sometimes I feel that theologians, and I fall into this trap too, you ever feel the pull that, well, we're talking about God, so it must, needs to be complicated with big words and complex concepts, you know? You say, what God is like, that's like too, you know, usual. It's attributes, that's better. And sometimes I think we miss how profound simplicity can be. God is love. So simple and yet so deeply profound. And love is only four letters long. But we have classification systems of God's attributes and characteristics handed down over the centuries. And while they can be helpful and as they are intended to be, these systems can be very confusing. I know they are for me. One such system of organizing in our talking about or studying the attributes of God and what he's like, it's one I grew up with, it's quite common, maybe uh, it'll ring a few bells with many of you this morning. So I like four people who heard about it in the nine o'clock service, so we'll see what's about you guys. The one I grew up with, the classification system as well, there are God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. Ever heard of that before? 
Okay, five in today's service. And that's a perfectly good system. These all are, but communicable and incommunicable, it makes me think of diseases. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, that's not a very good association with what God is like, right? You know, chickenpox and God should have a different set of words to describe it. Another classification system or categories of what God is like talks about God's imminent or tra- intransitive versus his eminent or transitive qualities. Whew. It's a mouthful. Now I've got to remember the difference between imminent and eminent. And intransitive and transitive sounds like a grammar lesson. I said, Mike, can't we do better than that? Well, another system talks about God's absolute and relative qualities. Maybe we're getting closer. I think I understand what absolute and relative means, but whenever I'm dealing with that system, I always have to, you know, relative to what exactly? And yet another common system of organizing God's attributes is that of natural and moral attributes. Well, maybe that's a bit closer. It's a bit strange to me because all the other categories sort of seem like opposite things. And natural and moral don't seem like opposites, so what's going on there? And by understand what they're after, because we really couldn't have unnatural attributes of God or, or, or good heavens, the immoral attributes of God. So it seems sort of obvious. It's, I don't know. It's like, what are they talking about? And so there, is there a better way? I mean, is there a better way for someone like me and maybe like you to, is there a plainer English way to, to look at it? Is there a God is love simplicity statement that yet remains as profound, something a little easier to work with and to tell people about? You know, what's your God like? Well, you know, he has these communicable and incommunicable qualities. Oh. I'd love to come to your church. I, I, and I don't want to lean too hard on it. They're excellent systems, and they have their place. But I don't know how often that place is when we get a chance to talk to someone who doesn't know about God, to tell them about him, to, to trot out, you know, well, he's eminent and eminent. So is there a better way? I don't know if it's better or best, but one that's easier to understand, at least, and to work with, to me, it's in plainer in English. I think this is something, at least, to consider. See what you think this morning. In fact, Many of you already know it, whether you realize it or not. You have learned already an excellent attributes of God classification system, and you learned it like way back in kindergarten, I bet most of you did. And you're thinking, you say, no way. I say, yeah, you did. And that's what I like about it. It's simple enough to speak to a five-year-old and yet more than profound enough to exhaust the deepest, most mature, and wisest scholar, and everyone like me who is somewhere in between. And it doesn't make you think of diseases or grammar. Many of you learned these categories for what God is like in kindergarten, and even before, when or if someone taught you to pray, God is great, God is good. <sighs> you know, you just have to 
do a little dance and rejoice when you, when you find plain lang- language, especially in theology where it seems so <laughs> infrequent. That full prayer, you remember, goes something like this. I didn't learn the full one. I only learned the first part. Maybe some of you have learned the full one. You know the prayer? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Yeah, I was going, for Jesus' sake, amen. But there's like another part. By his hand we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. For Jesus' sake, amen. Right? And in fact, if there's one thing I want you to remember this morning, well, two things. God is great. God is good. So to help you remember this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to sing this prayer. And go, Please stand. Yeah, I really mean it. Please, if you're able, or even Cain. <laughs> I've told that joke like 20 times, and you're like, well, it's not really a laugh every time. I don't know what it is. And in fact... We can sing this song to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. You know, have you ever noticed you can sing almost every song to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? Okay, how many of you knew? I only, I only found what I'm about to tell you. I'm, I only found this out about uh, five or six years ago. I never realized. How many of you knew that Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and the alphabet song are the same song? Not many. The rest of you are going, no way. Right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, twinkle, twinkle, little star. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, how I wonder what you are. Simple, but profound. Okay, let's sing it, shall we? And I'm hoping that this little song does what these little sorts of songs do, sticks in your head. So when you're driving down the road, you sing twinkle, twinkle, no. You sing this one, maybe, to that well-known tune. Can we sing it together, please? Let's try it. God is great and God is good. Let him, thank you, whoops, for our food. By his hand we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. For Jesus' sake, amen. Give yourselves a hand. Have a seat. Good job. You know, I forget who wrote the book, uh, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Boy, that's true sometimes, isn't it? God is indeed great, like the stars. That's there in the tune, at least. And oh, our God is indeed good. Like the food he provides, physical food, spiritual, emotional food, it's all there. God is great and God is good. Now, a word on the greatness and goodness of God as a classification tool or as helping us understand more of what God is like. The danger of great and good, I think, is to somehow think of great being better than good. You know, like good, better, best, or in this case, good, great, greatest. That's not what we're talking about. God's greatness and his goodness, it helps to add ness to it. God's greatness and his goodness, both his greatness and his goodness each stand on their own as equally important and mutually working together. 
but his greatness and his goodness are equally best. His greatness attitudes are no greater than his goodness attributes, in other words. Both are best. Now, there's no way for me in one morning, one sermon, to come even close to fully covering God's greatness and goodness. No way. We could spend weeks on each. Maybe we'll take one at a time sometime and, and we'll do that. But let me try to give you at least a taste, at least this morning, of what we mean, what we know about God's greatness and his goodness. And you can take it and run with it and dig deeper in your studies or devotions if you like sometime. First, God is great. And you can see some categories of, subcategories of God's greatness on the screen. And they all overlap around the edges. Many things about what God is like belong in several categories. Can't really pull God apart. It's just a tool to try to at least give us a different angle into who God is when theology takes apart. And we just have to remember to put it all back together again and to remember we're only looking at a piece as if we're dissecting him, which we can't do because he's a living, breathing being. First one about God's greatness. God is great because he is spirit. Some of the things there is, as spirit, God is not physical. God is spirit, John writes, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And because God is spirit, he's not limited by all those physical limitations that we're well acquainted with. For example, he isn't limited to a particular place and location. Luke writes in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything is in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And my friends, this is great news, this greatness of God being spirit. You don't have to go somewhere to find him. We don't have to travel to Mecca or Jerusalem or Mount Olympus or to any building to be nearer to God. As spirit, he is anywhere and everywhere. As spirit, he can truly keep Jesus promised that he's with us to the end of the age. Another aspect of spirit is that as spirit, he's indestructible, unlike material things. God being spirit is, is in part at least what's behind God's command, I think, that he not be represented by any physical object or likeness. Make no images, God commands. As a reminding witness of the importance of the essential that he's a spirit. And that's great news too. We don't have to be concerned that God will somehow be destroyed or is gonna decay or waste away like material things. As spirit, he cannot be destroyed. God is great indeed. And God is great because God is personal. That's the second one on the greatness list. God has personality. He is not the force in Star Wars. He's personal. He's an individual being with self-consciousness and will, capable of feeling, choosing, and above all, having a give-and-take relationship 
with other beings like us. He's personal. He's not an impersonal force or power like gravity or a beam of light. He's personal, and that makes him great. We can relate to God and he to us. Praise God that he's personal. He can sit with us. He can sit and weep with us at the foot of our bed at the end of the day and empathize with us. He can stand and cheer you on as you run the race of your life. He can laugh with us. One commentator included this line. God is not merely one of whom we hear, but one whom we meet and know. God is personal. His biblical names, many of them are personal names like Father, Shepherd, Creator, to name just a few. Oh, our God is personal, and this makes him great indeed. Next one on the greatness list is life. God is life. And I love this one. It makes me laugh every time I think of Moses standing there. There sits Moses by the burning bush. And one question he asks God is, what's your name? Who shall I say you are? They're going to ask me who sent me. It's funny. And it's simple, and yet it's profound. Is there something more simple or profound, and profound at the same time than what I'm about to tell you. I don't know. God looks at him, Moses sitting there, okay, what's your name? Who shall I say sent me? So you want my name? My name is, is. I am, or I will be, depending on your translation. The Hebrew verb there can go either way. God's name is the verb of being. <laughs> Thanks. I am. God is life. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples one day, remember? And Peter, as is his wont, takes a long, deep, and daring breath and jumps in enthusiastically. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter's like looking. Jesus' response was, Looking for what Jesus' response was. Jesus' face lights up and Peter goes, oh, I got one right. <laughs> yes. God is living. He is life. How would you define life? That's what God is. Again, I read something that I thought was helpful for me at least to appreciate what it means today that, that, that God is life. See if it helps you too. This writer said, we live in a world of contingency. So much of what we know and believe is conditioned by the word if. We will live another 10 years if our health does not fail. We will retire in comfort if our investments and pension program do not fail. 
We will be safe if the defenses of our government do not fail. We will enjoy the fellowship of friends if something does not happen to them. We'll get to our next appointment if our automobile does not break down. But with God, he writes, there is no need to say, God will be if. God is and will be. That's his name. <laughs> Period. There is one sure thing, and that is there is a God and there always will be. Close quote. Oh, amen. amen. God is life, and that makes him great indeed. God's greatness is also seen in his infinity. Ryan, you can tell your son, God is infinity and beyond. He's infinite. How old is God is an inappropriate question. He's no older than he was a year ago. Because infinity plus one is still infinity. My math friends, tell me so. God doesn't grow old or develop or mature. A, a few theologies come close at least to risking this or even suggesting it when they suggest variations in God's nature at different points within his existence. Old Testament God of wrath. New Testament God of love. Eh, not so. God doesn't change because he's infinite. He always was what he is, and he is what he always was, and he will be what he always was and is. Let's say that together. No. <laughs> One writer writes, from all eternity, God has determined what he is now doing. Thus, his actions are not reactions to unforeseen developments. He does not get taken by surprise or have to formulate contingency plans. Again, a few theologians risk this. When they give us a picture of God, for example, reacting to Israel's rejection of Jesus, almost as if God is saying, well, that didn't work. Guess I'll have to go to plan B. No, no, nothing happens that doesn't happen exactly as God already knows it will happen. And isn't that, isn't that comforting to know that no matter what happens in our lives, God isn't taken by surprise? In fact, he's already there an hour from now in your life. He's there right now. A day or a year or a decade from now, he's there when you get that phone call. He's there now. Loving you and preparing for you when we get there as finite creatures with him. And at the same time, he's with us now because he's infinite. Doesn't that make God great? No. And his infinity is much more than his timelessness. I always think time when we think infinity. But infinity also means limitless. So his wisdom and understanding and knowledge is without limit. 
His power is infinite. It has no limits. He can be everywhere at the same time. For those of you keeping score, that's those old categories of omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence coming through. All functions of God's infinity, his greatness. Last, on our greatness list, God is great because he's constant or unchanging. God tells us himself that although his people have turned aside from his statutes, I, the Lord, do not change, he says in Malachi 3. And that's great news for us. He won't leave us, ever. He says he's our God and he will be our God. Count on it. God is love, John tells us. And because God is unchanging, he will always be love. And oh, thank God for that. Literally, thank God for that. Oh, that makes our God great indeed. His constancy, the fact that he never changes. God is spirit. He's personal. He is life itself. And God is infinite and constant. He never changes. In other words, my friends, God is great. And his greatness is our great common ground. Or it should be. Next, God is good. Ah, I wish I had the time to develop these more. Maybe we will someday. We can think of three main categories of God's goodness. First, God's goodness is seen in his morality, his moral qualities. He's not just great, he's good. He's morally pure, meaning he's absolutely free from anything wicked or evil. This gets into meaning, it's the meaning of holy. It means he's holy, completely unique from all of creation, and absolute purity or goodness. And so God is therefore righteous. He's morally perfect. And so God is just. He is absolutely fair. Second category of goodness is seen in God's integrity. God is truth. He's genuine. He's a real God. He is who he says he is, and he does what he says he'll do every time, all the time. God always represents things as they really are. He's accurate. In fact, God cannot lie. Truth cannot lie. It's truth. By definition, not lie. And God is faithful. Short definition of the faithfulness of God is that God proves true. The faithfulness of God is that he proves true time and time again. He keeps all of his promises. And oh, my brothers and sisters, we have in God someone who really is who he says he is, as remarkable as he is. He really is that. He's God. And someone who always tells the truth and can't lie. And someone who always proves to be true. He keeps his promises. Oh, this makes God really, really good. And finally, God's goodness is seen in his love. And this one really serves as the foundation for all of God's goodness. In Jesus' words, all of God's words hangs on those love commands. John writes... Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Wow. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live, because he's life, through him. 
This is love. Not that we loved God, but this is love. That God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, John writes, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, when they see us, they'll see God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, John says, and God in them. Some speak of four different dimensions of love. Quickly, God is benevolent, which means that God cares for the welfare of those he loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life, eternal life. It's God's benevolent, self-giving, unselfish love. And second, God's love is seen in grace. Grace means that God deals with people not on the basis of our merit or worthiness or what we deserve, but God deals with us simply on the basis of we need. In other words, God deals with us on the basis of goodness and generosity. And God's love means mercy. Mercy is God's tender heart, his loving compassion for his people. It's his tenderness of heart for especially the needy. If grace is what comes to the rescue of humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, then mercy is what comes running to relieve our misery and fulfill all our needs. And finally, God is persistent. He's patient and long-suffering. Peter, again, comes running up to Jesus on behalf of the disciples, no doubt, and asks Jesus, how often do we forgive? And then I think Peter tries to take a guess at the right answer, and he's smart because he uses God's, he's one of God's special numbers. Seven times? And Jesus' answer, either 77 or 70 times seven, depending on the translation, the exact number doesn't matter. Jesus uses God's numbers too, only just more of them exponentially, making the point that that persistent, relentless nature of the love in this case in the form of forgiveness, is and must be the characteristic of those who follow Jesus. It's persistent. It's relentless. Now, I've given you lots and lots and probably too many words describing God's greatness and goodness. Words are helpful tools, but no amount of words can describe the greatness and goodness of God The Bible being largely a book that uses many Eastern pictures of God. Easterners use concrete things. So the Bible tries to help us with pictures. God is bread, the Bible says. God is living water. He's a mountain. One of my favorite pictures for God is one you don't hear a lot, and it says so much of him is that the Bible tells us that God is like a nursing mother. 
that even those pictures aren't enough. And God gives us all those beautiful concrete pictures. And he gives us all of these amazing abstract thoughts. And even when we combine them all together and someone gets up and, oh, look how great and good. I'm trying to describe it to you. We just, you can't really know it until. You want to know how you can know the greatness and goodness of God if you really want to know what God is like? Try him. Where's my pudding? Shoot, I could have had pudding two Sundays in a row. The proof that God is great and good is in the pudding. Try them. I can't convince you with words or even pictures. Try him. Taste and see that the Lord is good, God urges in the Psalms. Try me, he says. Try him, and then you'll know what God is like, and then you can tell me through the stories of what he does in your life how great and good he is. And I can add to my experience and knowledge and definition, wow, that sounds like community, maybe unity and diversity even. Go figure. (laughs) Try him. And if you haven't tried him ever, or if you have tried him once before, and it's been a while, or if you're thinking about trying, let me tell you something. If you're even inclined to try him, sometimes I hear people say, you know, you gotta pursue God and go after God, and I know, it, I know what they're after with that picture, but here's the thing. If you think, okay, I'm gonna pursue God, I'm really gonna go find God, and you say, all right, here I go, I'm gonna pursue him. Just the inclination of your heart to turn even a little to pursue, watch out, because you're not even going to take a step and a running God and Father is going to bowl you over because you paused enough even just to look. Wham! Because he's been pursuing you since the day you've been born and every day since. It's like, oh, this God thing, I don't know. It's like, well, all right, hey, God, I would love to. Wham! And you'll find yourself enveloped and hugged and overwhelmed with the greatness and all of those things and more than words or pictures can describe and the goodness of God. Try him. Just try him. I'd like to close this morning by Standing again and singing, not twinkle, twinkle this time. (laughs) But I'd love to sing with you to God about how great is our God. As you sing, you'll see in the words of this marvelous song by Chris Tomlin, many essentials and greatness and goodness attributes of our God. So let's join together, people of God. Let's, let's sing to God of how great is our God. Let's sing.
darkness tries to hide It trembles at his voice Trembles at his voice How great is our God Sing with me how great is our God And all will see how great How great is our God And age to age He stands And time is in His hands Beginning and the end Beginning and the end The God in one Father, Spirit, Son Lion and the Lamb Lion and the Lamb How great is our God Sing with me How great is our God And all will see How great How great is our God In the birth of You are worthy of our praise And my heart will sing How great is our God How great is our God Sing with me God is great. God is good. Those are essentials of the Christian faith, and they are solid common ground. God bless you all. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week, West Poles. Love you all.